This is an ABC podcast. Hey, welcome to the minefield. The show where we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Well, Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. I'm sorry. I, I'm laughing. I shouldn't have done this. I'm laughing because it's just dawned on me that Scott looks quite a lot like Todd Payton, the coach of the North Queensland Cowboys. <laughs> I don't even know who that is. I know. That's why it's really? so funny. Okay. So I'm just going to put that there. Do you want me to duck out and put on a jersey or something? I've just Google or, imaged yeah. it and it's it's so funny. Okay. So I'll let our audience do that. Thank you can, so much. Can figure that. How does it feel that, to be a rugby great. league coach? Yep. Okay. That's all you have. There you go. That's it's all funny. I, I feel like I can There play. are some weirdo Scott Stevenses out there, though. Uh, as in... People with the name. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, right. yeah. And the same spelling. It's kind of nuts. Oh, right. One of them, apparently, you sent me. There is somebody who did a. Well, now, hang on. Was it Stephen Scott who did a book on Trump as the political messiah or something? You uh, sent yeah, me a. That's yeah, right. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. I did. That was good. Yeah. yeah. I came across a Walid Ali once who wrote what looked like a very impressive paper on, I think, inorganic chemistry. I think it was Walid F. Ali, though, so it definitely wasn't me. Okay. But spelt the same way. As Does this mean you get a whole lot of bogus academia? Congratulations. That's how I found out. I got, a, I got an academia email. <laughs> you bet you said 3,700th. 3, 3, no, no, it didn't say congratulations. It was, are you the same Walid Ali who wrote whatever? <laughs> that, do you get, you get those ones occasionally? Yeah. And I went, no, no, I'm not, but I'll claim it. To, uh, anyway, um, it, it's going to be hard to avoid mentioning brands today because there's a very particular... Um, platform that we're discussing today. I think it's fair to say we should acknowledge up front that it comes up a lot mm-hmm. and we do discuss the effect of social media even when we're trying to talk about something that isn't, which on the one hand I apologise for, but on the other hand I don't because how can you but reference one of the most pervasive structures of our lives when you are having conversations about our lives. Mm. Um, it's just, it's almost impossible to, it would be like trying to avoid mentioning television in a previous era. It would have been just about impossible to do, mm. hard enough to do now. Mm. So social media comes up a lot. But today, and I don't know why you've done this because this was your suggestion. Mm. You wanted to look at one platform in particular. Yes, indeed. I guess because there's a whole lot of machinations around it. Yes, there at, are. At the moment in the corporate sense. Um, but also because... I don't know what, it has an oversized influence on our public life. Mm. Is that part of the motivation? Quite possibly. All right. Well, why don't you make the case? All right. Let's just take a step back, however, to the, about the pervasiveness of social media platforms. Um, We had Yolanda Stringers on the show not too long ago talking about voice assistants. And one of the things that she suggested, and she's been arguing for quite some time, is that part of the business strategy of many of these technology platforms is to so, and I realize that I'm using, using a morally loaded word here, and I don't necessarily mean for it to be morally loaded, but I'm going to stick with it anyway. Okay. Part of the business strategy of many of these platforms, these forms of, of technology, is to insinuate themselves into daily life so that they become seamless. Mm-hmm in the way that we interact with them. And they become seamless in the way that they mediate the world to us and then us to the world. In other words, what they do in Hannah Arendt's sense is they occupy a place of unthinkingness. Hmm. We simply engage in them. They might add a degree of utility, maybe enjoyment, a certain amount of pleasure to our lives, um, or they might actually serve a deeper ethical need even if they serve that need then in a way that's not quite as helpful as it otherwise should have been. So here's, here's kind of what I'm thinking There's about. another term for it, and I'm just trying to remember who said it. Sure. Delinguistified steering media. Oh, wow. Have you not come nope, across that before? I haven't. Oh, now I'm... Is it Habermas? Can I just say, I can imagine that phrase in German, which means sounds, it probably... <laughs> it sounds like... It is Habermas. It I'm is sure Habermas. It's Habermas. There yeah. you go. Um, but the, the idea... So the example that's often used is money. So it's not mm. expressed in language. Mm. It's therefore not explicit. Uh, but it's a medium that insinuates itself into every aspect of our lives. And as such, it instantiates a particular, well, I guess you would even say in the case of money, a particular ideolo- ideology or mm. a particular worldview. It imposes you, a logic on us. Yeah. Yeah, without us necessarily aren't thinking. aware That's right. that you're taking in. Mm. And so, you know, I guess depending on how far you want to take this, you become more or less an ideological dope of this hmm. steering media. 
Happy with that? Very, very Does nice. it apply to this? Yes, I, I, I think it does. So let me, well, maybe not fully, but partly. Mm. I'll, I'll, I'll confess from the outset, because I'm a weirdo, um, <laughs> that the figure that I always think about the media through, and social media in particular through, is the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, who I still think was one of the first, I mean, he was certainly the first, and I believe he still ranks as one of the greatest theorists of media and the popular press mm. in human life. One of the things that he recognized very early on, the first reference that I've come across in his journals uh, is in uh, 1852, 1853, where he's lamenting the fact that the popular press has really begun gaining traction in Denmark, that a great many people are reading it, and that a great many people have seemed to come to the opinion that having an opinion is itself a moral thing to do. That even if one feels very strongly about something and then does nothing to put that strong feeling into action, that the very fact of having a strong feeling about something that is in no way part of their daily lives, in no way is part of their national life, but nonetheless has come to their attention through the medium of the popular press, that feeling very strongly about that is something that they should do, and it's something that having done, they have done something good. Because they care with a capital C. They care with a capital C. Now, what he believed quite strongly, however, I'm talking about Kierkegaard, is that for morality to in fact be morality, it has to uh, incubate in the realm of personal deliberation. In other words, to some extent, one has to think, do I have a right to have an opinion about this particular thing? And if I do have a right or if I do have an obligation to have an opinion about a particular thing, then I should take responsibility for the opinion that I have about that particular thing, which means I should probably sit on that opinion for a certain period of time until I get to the point whereby verbalizing it, by expressing it, by communicating that opinion, I thereby become responsible for what it is I believe about that particular thing. He's got a very clear sense, I think, of moral action and of moral responsibility. By owning a particular moral stance, I thereby make myself responsible for that moral stance, which means I open myself up to repudiation. I open myself up for somebody else to come along and say, you're completely wrong about that. This is the right thing. So Kierkegaard was convinced that over a certain period of time, the sense that by having a strong opinion about a particular story, and he here dates, I think, quite specifically the emergence of what we might refer to as the op-ed pages, the emergence of opinion mm. uh, within the popular press. He says two, one of two things is going to happen. Either that feeling of I need to have an opinion about this and having an opinion is a strong thing to do. Either that would suffocate because I can't just have an opinion and not do anything about it. I need to express that to somebody or I need to do something, but simply having the feeling over a period of time, it's just going to suffocate like a flame in insufficient oxygen. As in the feeling will. And go out. The feeling will. Right. The opinion will go with it and it's like it all never happened. It's yeah. like feeling full after a meal or wearing a hat that goes out of fashion. Or he said, the feeling of it being a moral thing to do to have a strong opinion will transform the nature of morality so that morality becomes a form of performance. It becomes a mm. kind of expression. And it's not really anything that you end up having to do. I think I know where you're heading. Okay. So I suspect that what Kierkegaard was there doing is imagining in his own mind the invention of something like Twitter, which would be a form of quote-unquote action that people can engage in after forming a very strong opinion about something that may or may not have intimately to do with them. And by doing something, namely communicating it in a highly emotive or a morally charged way, or by doing certain things like pressing buttons, like retweeting, like, say, reading a story or not reading a story, as the case may be, that all of those things would come to fill in for something like moral action. And that by doing this, we become morally invested in the opinion that we have. That opinion can, to some extent, live outside of the confines of our own soul, and thereby we become maybe not wholly responsible for it. It then takes on a certain life of its own. It lives mm. beyond a fleeting, an intermittent feeling. I've erected a monument to my opinion. That's exactly right. Yeah, you see this in, uh, I think that it is in Twitter. It happens everywhere, I guess, but where um, Twitter buyers will say, you know, X, Y, Z advocate. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Where such advocacy seems to in here in the tweets below, mm. 
rather than in anything else. Hmm. Or It yeah. becomes a form of ornamental morality, if I can put yeah. it. I don't necessarily mean to put it down. That, uh, that's not to demean it, but it is no, to it is. say, well, it possibly is. It doesn't necessarily have to be demeaning. But Yeah, and it's not true that every no. person who engages in that sort of tweeting is not taking action. No. That's right. But it sounds like what you're talking about. Letting everybody know that they're taking that action or that this is a deeply held thing is a particular type of moral stance taking. Yeah. Is it more than that? Here's here's the point though. Okay. I do think that Kierkegaard, even in his grumpiness, recognized something that as you have you and I have discussed, that the great press barons of the American Gilded Age recognized a little bit too well. And that's that pure curiosity can only get you so far when it comes to engagement with the media. You don't just want to look at stuff. You don't just want to be horrified or fascinated by stuff. Readers want to be enlisted in a, in a holy cause. They want to be engaged in the sense that they want their emotions drawn into the story. And then they want that process of being drawn into a story to elicit some kind of response on their part. It might be, as it was for the Gilded Age press barons, it might be buying more copies of the paper. It might be becoming a loyal reader because of the stance that that particular paper takes. Mm. Or it might be another form of, quote unquote, public engagement. So it seems to me that through this kind of logic, this is the logic of audience engagement that gives birth to something like Twitter where you read, you want to communicate the fact that you've read, or in this, in certain cases, haven't read. We can talk about this later. And then Twitter becomes a particular form of quasi-moral action, where you own an opinion, you show that you feel very, very strongly about it, and you want to communicate it to those who, let's just say, are like-minded or to rile up those who are not like-minded. Mm. So I think there's something about the logic of engagement between the public and the popular press that almost demands the emergence of something like Twitter. But Why have you focused on Twitter, though, specifically? Because everything you've described, I think, could be applied to Facebook. Yes, true. Um, Instagram. Could it be applied to Instagram? Yeah, probably, increasingly. Quite, but not quite so much. Yeah, but Instagram's changing. Yeah. Well, so people who are on it tell me. Yeah. TikTok's a different story. may become the same story. Yeah. But so see, why Twitter? Well... Facebook insinuates itself in certain forms of life and a certain concern with lifestyle and personal biography that Twitter simply doesn't. So uh, Twitter, for instance, doesn't say, you remember where you were when this picture was taken or here's where you were five sure. years ago or Twitter doesn't send you happy birthday messages or no. remind you about the birthdays of other people. Yeah. Twitter is a, a global news feed. It's a global ticker tape. If only it were. If only it were. That's, I, don't, I don't think it is a global news. That's exactly the point, though. That's exactly. So there's been a particular relationship, and our guest can tell us whether this relationship was there from the beginning. I suspect that it wasn't, but certainly over time, there's been a particular relationship between Twitter and the news, between Twitter and politicians, between Twitter and... Journalists. Journalists, thank you. That means that it has an outsized influence in certain spheres of knowledge production and in the prosecution and prolongation of certain forms of debate, the thing that we've talked about in previous programs is that Twitter seems highly unrepresentative in the sense that to what extent is this what public opinion is really like? To what extent is this representative of the dominance of a certain progressive point of view or the lack of dominance of a conservative point of view? Yeah. Um, and, uh, I mean, one of the reasons we're talking about all this, of course, is that for the better part of the last six months, Twitter has been moving in and out of public consciousness, in and out of public debate, not least because of Elon Musk's originally stated desire to buy the platform back in April, a desire he then reneged upon and tried to back out of the deal, which was then met by a legal threat to coerce him to honor his original uh, offer. And now, as of last week, he seems willing to go ahead with that original offer and wants to buy the platform after all. Now, the reason he wants to do this is because he's made a particularly strident free speech argument about what Twitter should do in terms of facilitating public debate, what it should do in terms of content moderation or lack thereof. And so it means that we're left, I think, with two options. One is that he reinvigorates and reforms Twitter, 
taking it in either a desirable or less desirable direction. Or because of all of this and because of the plummeting of Twitter's stock value, the platform simply ceases to exist in the very near future. My question is, if it is going, will we miss it when it's gone? Mm. If it does need to be reformed, can it be reformed in a way that would be beneficial to democratic society? Or is it, as I kind of suspect it is, because of things that are uh, inherent to the program, to the platform, but not necessarily something that can be fixed in the sense of a bug? Is it something that is necessarily detrimental to democratic discourse because of things that have nothing to do with programming and have everything to do with speed and frictionlessness? And the programming of the human brain. Thank you. Which is, I think, what is like that. That's in some ways the main variable. Yeah, that's right. I'm, I don't know, I'm tempted to do something unusual and just truncate it, this whole conversation, and bring in the guest now, because mm, yes. I don't know that you will say anything that I will disagree with, and I don't know that I will say anything that you disagree with. We could, if you like, spend the next 10 minutes grinding out our agreement in sort of ever more amplified terms. Mm. Well, there's a certain pleasure in that. Oh, it's great fun. In <laughs> fact, there would be something I think I don't quite symbolically beautiful about doing that on a topic like Twitter. <laughs> Speaking to the tribe of the already yeah, convinced. Yes. Okay, okay, yeah, I can it, see that. Is it worth doing? No, or it's not. not. Let's I would merely state my position, which is, I suppose I can put it no higher than a suspicion because to some extent these things are unknowable. But I, my suspicion is for Twitter to become something else, it would have to become something else. That is, it would have to become more or less unrecognisable when compared with what it is today. Mm. And that is because I don't, I don't believe that Twitter is a platform set up for nefarious ends mm. or to have what I regard as the plainly deleterious effects that it's having on public discourse. I don't think that was the intention. Mm. We know this, for example, because one of the worst functions on it is the retweet function. Mm. I say one of the worst because you can track the effect that that had on the way that Twitter works. And the man who invented it has said it was terrible. <laughs> but his intention was that it would amplify marginalised voices. That's right. He's explicitly said that. Yeah. And then he watched Gamergate happen and it's like, oh, oh, okay, that's what's going to happen. Mm. Right? And he identified something very early on, which was that, that these were not people behaving in an aberrant way. This is what this tool would do when it was mixed with human beings. That's just what would happen. So there are certain features of it that I think have amplified the problem. I think the way in which it operates, the effect that it's had is a separate issue in some ways from the intention behind its mm. creation or even its amendment. That's right. And for that reason, I'm sceptical that any other intended amendment will necessarily work unless you change the basic grammar of it. Mm. And the basic grammar, I think, has to do with all of the observations you made, performance, the wearing of opinion mm -hmm. as some kind of moral status, but also as some kind of fashion parade. And the idea that this is a somehow meaningful way of going about public discourse. There's, there's a conceit, I think, that these things are just alternative platforms by which we converse. And we have the same conversations we could have if only we gathered everyone into a room. Mm. And my problem is, no, we don't have anything like a conversation you would have if you gathered everyone in the room for the very important reason that they would be actual people in an actual room and you would have to confront them in a way that I just don't think the digital world lets you do. Mm. So unless you could, and I guess I could be convinced on this, I don't imagine how, but I guess it's possible, unless you could subvert all of those definitional dimensions <laughs> to the platform, I don't see its redemption. Mm. And then you're dealing with something completely different. Let me say two things really quickly. Um, I'm not on Twitter. I haven't been for seven years. I did manage an ABC Twitter account for five years. I got to say, for the first couple of years of it, I thought it was delightful. I was stunned. The voices I was coming across that I never would have heard otherwise. And contributors that I now have regularly to the site that I edit, mm. which I only discovered through something really insightful that they tweeted. There was an, an openness and a possibility of discovery that really moved me. 
Um, they all start this way. Yes. The thing that, that caused my own, uh, what made it become an agony was witnessing what we've now seen empirical data on, which is the number of people that were responding angrily to stories that were being published without coming anywhere near reading those stories. Mm. Seeing the incredible disparity between those who, quote unquote, engage versus those who click through. Uh, we've seen, for instance, uh, most recently, the last survey that I saw was in 2018, less than 70% of those who tweet have uh, who tweet in response to a story have read the story. Mm. Can I add something to that? Yes. We see that same dynamic play out, not on Twitter, but on news websites. That's right. That's right. So People going straight, yes, that, that's right. I've seen the headline, now I'll go to the comments. Mm, that's thing right. And I'll write my... And you can tell there's not they've not read. So Yeah, but that also says something about the way that the headline has been written in order to no make doubt. it No doubt. But but hang on, in order to accommodate social media distribution. And it usually says something also about the lead, which has been written in such a way to accommodate social media distribution. In sure. other words, that kind of response has already been factored into the way that the story is being crafted and sold. Yeah, that's probably true. That's probably true. Although headline writing has always been a little bit splashy. A, a dark art. Yes. Right? Thank you. So even absent social media distribution, I suspect that would live on. Mm. And could you reform Twitter in such a way that it doesn't even retain those same dynamics as a comments page on a news website? I, I don't know. I'm not mm. a software engineer, I other, don't, but I don't see how. Look, the other concern that's just worth mentioning here, I have an issue with speed and scale. Yep. I mean, early on having to type out RT having to cut and paste a link, having to do all of those little incidental things that one had to do in order to create just a little bit of friction before one could circulate a story to one's followers. There's something about that friction that I think is morally apropos. Yeah, which is why the introduction of the retweet button had such a huge effect. Yeah. Yeah. It also just raises the question, and this has been an issue for democratic theorists I mean, it's there in Plato. It was there kind of most powerfully in James Madison. Democratic speech should not go that far. For it to remain responsible speech, it does have to be constrained by certain limitations of persuadability, of tone, and of responsiveness to the reactions of other people. Now, to that extent, Twitter is nice in that it gives you the reactions of other people. It makes writers of pieces responsible in a way that they might not otherwise have been. But I think when it comes to the whole realm of democratic engagement, of moral provocation, there is a kind of one-way street here. There is a preparedness to enrage, to provoke, and then to hive oneself off from the inevitable response um, that I think is ultimately, I mean, it's a corrupted form of moral deliberation, much less democratic deliberation. And I think it's made us, because of the scale that we've come to expect from stories, from the circulation of, of news content, the circulation of media content, it's made us expect degrees of engagement, the sheer tonnage of readers that have been promised, that if it doesn't reach a kind of threshold, we somehow think that these stories aren't worthwhile or the topic isn't worth engaging. I think there's something there that's created a whole realm of, of expectations that ultimately has led to a kind of skewing of, of, of value itself. Yeah, and that was merely an extension of what broadcast had already proven. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Including shows like this. There you go. We've managed to grind out the 10 minutes we said we weren't going to. Let's bring in the guest. Gene Burgess is Professor of Digital Media in the Digital Media Research Centre at Queensland University of Technology. She's also Associate Director of the National ARC Centre of Excellence for Automated Decision-Making and Society. And she, along with Nancy Bame, have quite literally written the biography of Twitter. It's called Twitter, a biography. Gene, thanks so much <laughs> for joining us. Thanks did for did you not me. know that, Waleed? No, it's just funny the way you express that. Oh, really? Okay. Yep. Anyway. Go for it. What would you like me to, where would you like me to start? Where anywhere, would you like to start? Where that you think well, we were listen, most astray? Well, I've been on Twitter for 15 years. Wow. Since March 2007. Which You're was, an early adopter. Which, well, it's when it kind of took off at South by Southwest with several thousand people finding out <laughs> about it, including, you know, nerdy internet studies academics like myself and Nancy, who we joined at the same time. It's all very cute. And actually the term social media wasn't in widespread adoption and it was quite, quite a minority kind of 
term for these things. They were called social networking sites or, in fact, Twitter was referred to as a micro-blogging service mm. uh, by its founders. And it was actually, in a way, thought to um, be a threat of displacement to the blogosphere, which was thought to carry many of the the terrible qualities that you've been ascribing mm. to Twitter, which is there's too many people with too many opinions and they're all getting angry and it's all becoming very polarised along left and right No lines. editorial gatekeepers. Right. And so, you know, Twitter was, was really invented as a little bit of a side project within a different company that was doing podcasting way back when. That's another story about the history of podcasting. But, Can um, I say we are going to have this show yeah. in about five years' time? About the problem of the proliferation of podcasts. Yeah, we probably will. Yeah, yeah you probably will, and you'll probably blame the internet for yes, it. Yes, <laughs> um, Anyway, so a microblogging service. So the idea is a little, basically an SMS functionality in the US, although for boring reasons that wasn't available in Australia. And the idea was you just text your friends literally what you are doing. What are you doing? Not what's happening in the world. What are you doing? And... Uh, it was taken up in precisely that way as a kind of way to give people situational updates, mood updates, what they're having for lunch, all this kind of thing. One of the first descriptions I heard of it was, it's just the Facebook status update. That's it. Exactly. And that fits exactly with the way you've described it. Exactly. Yeah. It was text only. There's, of course, no links because there's no uh, smartphones in mm. people's hands yet. Yep. You might have a Blackberry if you're really um, out there, corporate type. And this is how it's, this is the culture of of Twitter at the beginning. There was kind of a predominance, of course, of geeky male techno nerd types. But then as academics, as artists, as media people started to pick it up, it becomes a little bit more diverse, but still really focused on these kind of mundane human-to-human -human social interactions. It's only a few years later, between sort of 20, 2009, 2012, that you know, Twitter tries to scale up, tries it goes public, blah, 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 blah. Suddenly it needs to have a business model. And really the only available business models were pay for subscription or advertising. So it becomes media. So all of the pathologies that um, we might ascribe to social media are really just, as Waleed was kind of hinting at, associated with the logics of the media business, the commercial media business, full stop. So all the stuff about um, people are pining on things I haven't read. Well, you know, you can just hear them now. So if you do get everybody in the room together, um, I don't think you're going to have a nice civil conversation anyway. You're going to have a lot of minority voices drowned out. You're going to have a lot of overbearing men um, arguing that we, what we need is more deliberative democracy and there's all sorts of alternatives about what a healthy conversation or a healthy public sphere might be. So that's where I'll start. I remember... Um one of the very early adopters, a very prominent figure within the media who adopted Twitter and was very, very enthusiastic about it, was the late David Carr, the media reporter at the New York Times, who at first thought, I just don't see what the big idea is. I don't see what the deal is. All I can see are the possible dangers of just being inundated with more and more and more and more ill-thought opinion. Um, he wrote a very famous piece in 2009 and was enthusiastic about the way in which it's just the messages and the messages form their own kind of winnowing attraction that can't help but open people up to one another and open up other people to to the world. So there's something... Yeah, but right from the beginning, you get uh, journalists and serious political science academics saying Twitter's kind of potentially great but terrible because it's all too much mundane, everyday stuff. I don't care about people's lunch. I don't care if, about somebody's first day at school. And so there was a deliberate kind of disciplining of the Twitter user base towards media logics, even before that media business model came in. And there are actually really uh, passionate debates among those early adopters who were there for the first couple of years about these two different alternatives between a genuinely sociable, you know, gentle, playful, uh, perhaps silly, perhaps pointless half the time, perhaps just spend a lot of time procrastinating on, on Twitter that model versus the newsy information needs to be the nervous system of the planet. Um, mm. You know, I don't want my news feed cluttered with your personal life. So, oh, you know, we, you get what you ask for. Yeah. Right, but, and that's happened to every platform. This is the observation that I can't stop thinking about, right? The formalisation, professionalisation, et cetera. Yeah, and the platform. newsification, yeah. if you like. Well, the metrics, the metrics lead the... 
Yeah. Well, that, that, yeah. that's possibly true. So I think, but I think about Facebook. There was a time where Facebook became a byword for cat videos, right? Hmm. And then it, not long after that, that's when you started seeing, well, groups and the political organising and so on. And Facebook becomes a deeply radicalising political phenomenon because of the role that news plays on the site but in people's own feeds. Hmm. Hmm. Um, and it doesn't go away when they introduced the family and friends algorithm or whatever, which meant that you didn't see news sites necessarily. You saw what your family and friends were posting, but they were already, their hooks, the, the news had its hooks into yeah. them. And so you'd just get their news and opinion, right? That's before you get to the fake news dimension of it. But this, the stuff you're talking about with Twitter there, Gene, is I didn't know that it began as this frivolous place, but it certainly ended up in exactly the same way Facebook did. What I hear about with Instagram, same thing. Three years ago, I reckon, I remember hearing people say Instagram, oh, it's the most positive place of all the social media sites. It's positive, right? And it's, it's silly. It's people putting lunches up and, oh, there's some annoying influences on there or whatever. Now it's becoming deeply politicised, right? It's the nature of it. Um, TikTok's the next domino to fall, and I suspect it's in the process of falling because I've started to see those, you know, worried think pieces emerge, even though I don't know as much about the way TikTok's going. I just wonder if there's an inescapable logic to these things that isn't, I mean, yes, I take the point about, you know, big thinkers saying it needs to be less frivolous, but I actually don't know if it matters what they would have said, um, that this is just an inescapable logic of these sorts of platforms because of the kinds of things that inspire sharing or inspire virality, inspire digital community. Yeah, yeah, sure. I, yeah, I think that's part of it. It's the limits of the available business models for running any of these things, which lead to, like, it's just really impoverished and unimaginative thinking. So we, we need to maximise reach and engagement for advertising. Like, is this still all we have to support with resources um, our society's ability to communicate with each other, to entertain each other, to care about each other even. It's very, it is depressing. I agree. Okay. Let's just stick with strong feelings for a moment. Because one of the things that Waleed and I have been, I don't know, is lamenting the wrong word? We lament a lot. I worry about a condition of moral illiteracy. Not that we don't know how to read, but that we've come to look at things online instead of reading. And that words become harbingers, avatars of a particular emotion. And that it's that emotion that is meant to communicate with us. So that we're living in a time of even the imagification of words themselves. I mean, the obvious case is the, you know, the weaving of emojis into text or the use of caps in order to convey a particular strong feeling. My, my concern is that our attunement is right at the far end of the moral spectrum. We know that uh, moral emotions increase the shareability, the retweetability of particular content. And we know that more specific emotions decrease the likelihood of it being shared. We know that, for instance, outgroup sentiment dramatically increases the shareability, whereas more conciliatory gestures decrease the shareability of something. Emotions are kind of and the communication of emotions are fundamental to human being. It's fundamental to our way of relating to the world and comporting ourselves to the world. I worry constantly, though, about the commodification of those emotions. And then in my worst moments, I suspect that they're being... I mean, do people really feel this strongly about that many things? Or is there a degree of performativity behind those emotions as well, or that they flash and fade, and then they're being exploited for a particular uh, purpose. I, I mean, I, I see the media as having far more to do with this, maybe even than, than individual users. But I'm, uh, I'm just wondering about the use of the exploitation of the emotional valence in social technologies. I have to say, in general, I'm a bit concerned about, like, the implicit value, set of values in your, in what you're saying okay. there, Scott, around rational deliberation is a good in itself and that... No, I don't think that at all. Well, well, what you're saying would probably be quite compatible and picked up positively by people who do think that. So. Okay, sure. And that's a deeply gendered history as well. So people, too many people having too many feelings and people's feelings are too easily exploited by capitalism, like 
that goes back to the earliest days of popular literacy, of mass publishing, of magazines, and this exactly the same critique is just recycled mm. every couple of decades. And it's it's really gendered. Mm. It's really gendered. And I, I think, uh, you know, I wouldn't speak for, say, the uh, Indigenous Australians who participate in the Blackfella Twitter community, for example, or, um, you know, I do have colleagues who've written quite a bit about um, black American uses of Twitter and the kinds of uh, deeply historical and embedded expressive practices and performative practices that do use visuality, that use expressive modes of communication are deeply meaningful and have lots of symbolic layers that underwrite their organising, their knowing themselves as a community, their politics in a way that um, kind of discourses of democracy and deliberation and the privileging of words over bodies, movements, feelings mm. doesn't. I couldn't agree more. Um, let me just make one brief response to sort of add a footnote to it. The requirement of rationality and democratic liberation has been a form of moral suffocation in many, many forms of political life and of social thriving. But even the, even the idea of democracy has been generally oppressive for a lot of groups of people. It has been, which is why democracy has often been either paired by, challenged by, to some extent even supplemented by certain claims of what are called either mass democracy, radical democracy, or even populism. I mean, populism itself actually began as uh, either forms of workers' unions, or forms of disenfranchised or marginalized. In other words, the very idea of the mob was used to discredit forms of political activism uh, that need not be empowered, that need not be taken seriously because they cannot conform to the inhabited or the already given structures of political communication. They are voiceless in the sense that they are non-representative and therefore they, they aren't deserving of political representatives. So you're, you're absolutely right there. Here's my issue. This is a form of morally urgent, morally serious discourse that cannot have any stock with gradualism, with, yes, we'll get to you when we're ready. Yes, can't you see we're making progress over time? Can't you just be a little bit more patient? So these are forms of, of political and moral insistence and seriousness that have no stock with uh, gradualism, with pleas for patience, with the desire to, we can't rock the boat too much because it's going to disenfranchise or disquiet others. The issue, though, is that those are forms of advocacy that had a particular, that have a particular valence and that ought to make a claim on our moral attention. When that form of political and moral insistence is then met by a countervailing form of political and moral insistence, of the same tone, with the same moral charge. This is the equivalent of Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter. The second response is, to my so mind... It, it, sorry, I'm just trying to, listening to you and just trying to figure out where you locate this, like you're quite generalised. Oh, yes. And in my experience, there are many subcultures and scenes and different ways of using Twitter. And what you're describing is the most visible, the most reported upon... Sure. You know, it's kind of a filter bubble, honestly. It's also statistically demonstrable. Yeah. So uh, it's not... Yeah, it's the noisiest bit, that's all I'm saying. This mm. is the noisiest bit right. of Twitter. But the noisiest bit is the bit that, by definition, will have the greatest influence on public well, discourse, right? Well, um, if it gets amplified... But it's noisy. It, it's the noisiest yeah. bit, so it amplifies itself. Yeah, and, you know, there are lots of things you could do about that. So when a new user joins Twitter, for example, you don't have to say, please follow these celebrity accounts or these, you know, famous blue tick mm. politicians. But anyway. Mm. Look, I don't... I mean, first of all, I take your criticism. I don't disagree with anything that you said. My worry is when a particular type of moral emotion and the use of that moral emotion becomes a currency becomes the stock in trade, it cannot help but radically diminish the effectiveness and the power of that moral emotion and its use within public discourse. I'm not saying emotion bad, rational deliberation good. The use of emotion at a particular pitch as a way of prosecuting a particular ideal or trying to achieve a particular form of justice, I think can have catastrophic effects 
on the way that we carry out and envisage yeah. our life together. I, I don't entirely disagree. I, I'm just listening to you with the ears of perhaps a, a minority group, a member of a minority group who feels sure. genuine passion and rage, well-justified rage on a topic. And I understand what you're saying, that that genuine passion, perhaps rage, which, you know, can actually be politically productive is then met by perhaps less sincere countervailing performance of emotions. Or perhaps equally sincere, yeah. That's the point. I mean, I I belong to a minority group that's impassioned and rageful about a lot of things and I saw where that led and it led to 9-11. Yeah. I don't have this desire to legitimate passion and rage, qua passion and rage. These things are only meaningful when they're orientated towards some other greater end and some other end that has to be, in my view, especially in a democratic setting, group transcending. And I think that's part of, maybe Scott and I aren't talking about the same thing here, I'm not entirely sure, but I think that's part of the issue with the way that emotive language is used. It's, it's not that it's not rational, it's that it deems itself sufficient and that it's, it's that it deems itself, it is not to be engaged. It is merely to be surrendered to. There can be no response. And so for that reason, it's silencing. And I understand fully the irony of using that word in this context, but that's what it does. Now, the problem with that is if what you're after is any kind of exchange or any kind of conversation, then that's going to end up being a terrible way to do it. You do, I suppose, have an alternative, which is to say, I don't seek a politics of conversation. I don't seek a politics of deliberation. I seek a politics of your submission to my will and I claim a moral legitimacy or authority for that will on the basis that I belong to an oppressed minority. I guess all I would say is good luck with that. Actually, no, I wouldn't say good luck with that. I would say you're really just succumbing then to a brand of politics that's the same as the one you despise and you're using power as the mere differential to to make it legitimate. I guess the difference there would be where you're expressing legitimate rage and feelings in a safer, more private setting versus where the assumption is that it's directed at the other or at a public sphere. And this is where I think, you know, to go back to that history of Twitter, there has been a real shift from smaller groups of people who actually knew each other or were friends of friends having a kind of an incidental sort of intimate conversation that was technically public but no one was listening, this shift towards these logics of amplification Mm. and so everything gets noisier and noisier and louder and louder and louder and the sense of... A a way of doing public business basically. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So has that been replaced with the WhatsApp group? Well, it has its own problems, doesn't it? I'm not sure actually. (laughs) I'm less familiar with them. Well, there are these tensions between, well, and it's not just a simple binary, right, between a private space where you mm. and your in-group can vent or share support or whatever versus um, a more strategic mode perhaps of, or a more, you know, a more good faith mode of engagement in public. Mm. It's, so it's not a simple binary between private and public, right? In encrypted messenger groups, there are a whole set of other problems, which again are not new, but problems of gossip, problems of rumour mongering, mm. um, where disinformation can spread like wildfire because you don't have that oversight or uh, alternative mm. perspectives in, in the conversation. So I don't think there's any ideal alternative currently. Is there something wrong with the ambition of scale? I just can't help but, but think there is something kind of wonderful about the idea of communicating meaningfully, instantly, over matters of deep concern. As soon as you add scale, and then you compound scale with speed, the issue of moderation, of trying to curb misinformation or overtly nefarious prejudice, hate, whatever else, unless you want to massively undercut your bottom line, becomes almost impossible. I'll go back to the question, is part of the problem here, even if we just leave speed to the side, is scale here putting us on the wrong foot? Well, speed was always there. Um, Speed and scale enabled Twitter to be really useful in natural disasters, which is where Mm. the hashtag kind of really took Mm. off. And for coordinating political protests, for example, 
the problem with the obsession with growth on growth on growth is that that's a capitalist logic. And the only way to get that is to, as we've been talking about, emphasise engagement that can be measured for investors above all else. And so that's why you have the retweet button. That's why you measure the number of replies because they're just, as I was saying, unimaginative, very traditional, um, advertising-driven media business logics. And yes, so that's when you get just this kind of almost automatic pressing of the retweet button and and epic tweet storms and pylons hmm. and so on. It's driven entirely by those metrics that are in turn driven by the needs of the venture capitalists to get a return on their investment. Hmm. Um, I mean, that's Twitter's problem all along, right, is the monetization aspect of it. And scale hasn't seemingly solved that problem. Well, scale's kind of flatlined right. for quite a while. Hmm. Um, I wonder though, so even with the the benefits of Twitter that are often offered up. So you just gave a couple of examples. Was it um, natural disasters? There was one other. Thank you, Cave. Oh, well, political action. Political action. Uh, yeah. Actually, Arab really, Spring. Well, it's Z- really Zainab Tefeci's work. The so-called Arab Spring. Well, yeah, yeah, sorry, is, thank so you. Zainab Tefeci's work is really fascinating yeah. on this because what it shows is that that might be a mirage. Hmm. And maybe that takes us full circle to the performative aspect of a lot of this. Get, you get a big protest. I, I went to one of them in the... US, I was covering it, the, one of the gun protests. Unbelievable the number of people that were there and were rallied in no time. But the point that Tefeki's making is, unfortunately, that doesn't mean anything anymore because it's so much easier to get those people there. And so what you get is the protest, the, the party, if you like. You get the, the moment and then after that you get what? That's what we saw with Occupy Wall Street. Um, you could argue the Arab Spring slightly different, but you could argue in the end... It's been futile in a lot of countries. I, my background's Egyptian. I, I have a keen interest in that country. That country's ended up where it started. Gezi Park. I mean, you can go on and on, and she does. So Yeah, that, and that's 12 years ago now, anyway. So yeah, that, the discourse around that, again, driven primarily by mainstream media, suddenly hyping Twitter, not because it was a way for people to connect to each other and have calm conversations, but because it's going to change the world and lead yes. to political change. And not so, just the media, but also tech companies themselves who of talk course. about it this way. Yeah, yeah. of course. But it is just also, industry hype. But it is also something that is offered by Twitter users who want to def- defend the platform, right? So it's it's not merely corporate entities that have a, a stake in, in arguing this. No, no, no. But I think ordinary Twitter users who've been there for a, a while would probably argue for other erstwhile uses and benefits of it. So... Uh, like well, meeting friends. Right, okay. That become your friends for the rest of your life. Like, very boring, not newsworthy. Yeah. And I think I think most, most knowledge professionals would say it's probably essential infrastructure for their... whether they're academics, journalists, um, yeah. or whatever. I mean, the, prop, the problem I have with this is you now take me into a conversation I've had previously and shouldn't have again um, about how I think, particularly for media practitioners... It's the opposite of that. Um, I'd, I'd, it'd be okay if they all left Twitter. Yeah, I, I <laughs> it'd be agree. okay for me. I mean, one of the one of the <laughs> great things I, I'm sure I've said this before, Scott, because I say it all the time. Because I think it's such a great distillation of it. It's not my quote. That the idea is that Twitter is a place where celebrities think they're journalists and journalists think they're celebrities, and it's it, it captures so much that that distillation. You know, the idea that it turns people who really have no business commenting on certain things or getting involved in certain matters into people who must do that because mm. that's who they have to be. And it takes something like the profession of journalism and turns it into something that's debauched, right? It's, it's, I mean, is journalism a profession anyway? All right, leave that to one side. But it takes, it turns it into something that becomes performance theatre, right? And it's a different thing. I guess that's my thing with a lot of the arguments I hear about Twitter. Here's this benefit, here's that benefit. Every one of them, it seems to me that, they are benefits that could be and were being realised in other ways and this might be actually displacing rather than adding to. Well, yeah, through blogs, for example, you know, kind of not joking about some of my lifelong friends who I met when we were studying our PhDs and genuinely sharing resources and ideas and providing social support via our little individual blogs that we had. Hmm. Uh, We all moved to Twitter and everyone stopped blogging. (laughs) So something will come next. Right. I guess I'm just wondering if 
Am I at the very least right to be suspicious or onto something in being suspicious of some of these benefits as though they're inherent to the medium and can't be provided some other way? Of course. It, um, the, the platform has kind of um, stopped innovating, causing social problems. The platform's in trouble, but I think we're at a really interesting moment as well in the digital media landscape where it's not very clear actually what's going to come next and some of the alternatives are more dystopian than mm. social media. Can we just go to the issue of free speech really quickly? Very quickly. Just very, very quickly. Content moderation. Hmm. I mean, is it actually feasible with given the scale and the speed that we've been talking about, given the underlying capitalist model that privileges certain types of communication and that privileges frictionlessness? Is content moderation something that is actually feasible? Or are we going to have to find some other way of minimizing the likelihood, the inevitability of forms of harassment, hate speech, hate mongering, and so on. Well, content moderation is inevitable and unavoidable for a platform of any scale, including Twitter. And it's only been in the last, I would say, five years that any of the platforms have become really serious about it. Mm. And of course, it takes an American election and a pandemic that affects America That's right. um, for them to do anything really serious about it, despite Gamergate, despite... Myanmar. M Myanmar, yes, good example. And... I think what we're going to see is there'll be a lot more of it, but it will be a lot less transparent how mm. it's happening because what you can do is, uh, to, you know, to, to, satisfy, to satisfy your whole audience, you just diminish the visibility of content that that audience would find offensive. I'm doing scary bunny. <laughs> um, <laughs> I never call <laughs> Scary bunnies. Scary bunnies. Nice. Yeah. Um, offensive, uh, which, and, and that's a euphemism for real harms that can mm. be caused by um, hate speech and, and so on. So uh, there'll be more and more of it. There'll be more automation, but there'll also be more uh, human labor put into it. Most of these companies have really quite large internal teams working on content moderation using a combination of automated and, and manual methods and the, the internal policies that are associated with that are incredibly complex. Wow. Incredibly complex. And uh, so one of the reasons that I said I don't know what's going to come next and it might be dystopian is that perhaps these tech companies realise that being in the media business is actually just way too hard and that are not profitable. That would be an extraordinary result and a great result, I what think, happens for just then? everybody. What happens then? I would just say our good Public friend... Public service internet... Our, our, well, our good friend Nicholas Agar has pointed out that the next big growth area of human employment is going to be human assistance to digital... To AI. Yes. Yeah, prompt, prompt engineering, for yeah, example. exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, full circle. Full circle. And then they'll be scared of the coming human invasion. <laughs> Jean, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been me. wonderful having you uh, in on the minefield. Jean Burgess is Professor of Digital Media at Queensland University of Technology. I guess for this week's edition of the minefield. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.